0: Well, hi, everyone. This is uh, Roger Horowitz of the Hagley Museum and Library. I'm here for another episode of, of uh, Hagley Mystery Hangout, where we talk to people who have been doing such interesting research in the collections uh, of our library and archives there, uh, in part so that you get to know the wonderful work that's done here and also so you think about what you might be able to research uh, in our collections. Uh, with me today is Brent Siebel. Uh, an old friend who's done a great deal of research at Hagley and given papers here and published papers through our various means here. Uh, he is now assistant professor at the University of uh, Pennsylvania, and he's come to talk to us about his new book, the "Illusions of Progress: Business, Poverty, and Liberalism in the American Century." Brent, thanks for coming in and joining us.
1: Thank you so much, and thank you to Hagley for all the resources and support over the years. It it, it truly was one of the really significant sort of repositories and and proving grounds for some of the ideas that became this book. So I'm really grateful to be able to share some of my findings with with this community.
0: We'll come back to that. I'm going to ask you to say more about that. But first, let's get to the book there, Illusions of Progress. Um, Very simple question to start off with. uh, Why did you write this book? What inspired (laughs) you? I mean, mean, yes, I know you you were in a PhD program, not that you do, but- more than that, you know, what were the questions that motivated you to embark on this project? Uh, folks who are watching may know that when you write a dissertation and you produce a book, it's over a decade, a lot of investment in a particular project there. So what, what motivated you to want to do this kind of a project for a dissertation and a book?
1: Yeah, so I I grew up in Cleveland, which is um, one of the one of the sort of threads that I weave through the book, the sort of history of, of Cleveland, Ohio in the 20th century. And I I I sort of came of age um, in the 1990s in Cleveland when Cleveland was sort of known as the comeback city. It was it was the the place that the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business um, School, did case studies of the public private partnerships in Cleveland and how this sort of civically engaged set of business people, um, you know. Top attorneys, um, real estate interests, some of the bankers in the city had sort of led the city's recovery from the, the you know, the, the nadir of deindustrialization in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, and we had new stadiums and towers and things like that. And um, I. I was initially quite sort of enchanted by the sort of booster mythos uh of the 1990s um but as I as I sort of aged out of that I realized that that was only captured a very small sliver of what was happening downtown and that the the sort of rising tide was not lifting all the boats in the city as we say Um, And so I was interested in that as sort of a a political question about, you know, how do we actually solve problems at the urban level? And then at the same time, we had this first wave of scholarship by scholars like Kim Phillips Fine and Angus Bergen on the sort of anti-statist strain of business politics, um, which seemed decisively not the case of what my business people were doing in Cleveland. And so I was interested in this sort of Um, where, where did the sort of civic spiritedness, um, and how do we situate that in the broader sort of historiographical questions of liberalism and conservatism and business history? Um, and so that, that really was sort of one of the, one of the things that propelled me into this project was, was how do we sort of account for this very different and local form of business politics that, that contrasted pretty sharply with, with what we were hearing about sort of national Koch, Koch brothers style politics.
0: Well, for those who aren't familiar with literature, I mean, what, what Brent's referring to is a sort of a consensus among academics that uh, this neoliberalism, as you might call it, moved away from reliance on the state. In, a, in a short, yeah. that's the direction of that. And and uh, people like Kim Phil Spine mentioned spent a lot of time trolling through archives for correspondence with people who engaged this effort to reduce welfare, you know, the welfare society in America. So you didn't, that didn't work for you, I gather. That, that argument really didn't, didn't sense it right.
1: Well, so one of the things that was interesting and, and one of the puzzles that I sort of worked through um, is that as I got into local archives or chambers of commerce records, who are sort of the key figure, the key sort of organizational um, um, means by which my business people are affecting um, city politics and, and federal policy as well, um, was that they very often did um, speak in ways that sounded rather like, you know, the national business elites of the Liberty League from the 30s and 40s and, you know, sort of Koch brothers style frustration with big government. But they often mobilize that way of speaking in order to justify their control over government programs. Um, it's a sort of say, oh, if the state does this, it's going to be inefficient, it's going to be wasteful, it's going to go to other areas that don't need these subsidies, these developmental programs, these anti-poverty programs. But if we manage them, uh, if we have control over them, they will be they'll be much more efficiently and effectively run. Um, and so I saw a sort of kindred, um, an, you know, anti-statist discourse, but it was actually mobilized on behalf of more privileged access to the state <laughs> um, rather than, you know, rolling it back.
0: Well, I, I, my, my reaction to that is, is uh, you know, in, in history, one of our old saws is, is change or continuity. And, and the, the Philip F. scholarship, again, great stuff, yeah. argues, argues for change, that a change takes place. Uh, There's an earlier book by Gary Gersel, uh, mm-hmm. The End of the New Deal Order, or that's a new book, and then, then The Making of the New Deal Order, this sort of notion that you know Reagan's election marks a, a break. And you are really arguing, you really have really the continuity argument going on here.
1: Yeah, and it, it stretches back even further than... Um then I think the book itself, I mean, one of the things that I look at is like, you know, how in, how in fact did the new deal instantiate itself? How did these works programs operate? And one of the, one of the real crises facing the Roosevelt administration in the 1930s when it came in was simply one of capacity. Like how do we, how do we create agencies that fan out across the country? And what they realized pretty quickly was that you couldn't do this in a relatively centralized way. Um, and both politically, but then also just in terms of, you know, um, pragmatism um, and what they recognized. And, and this is really, you know, I thought the project was gonna be sort of a post sixties project about sort of neoliberalism in a certain way. And it and the archives drew me back. And, and what you find instead is that the sort of progressive era rise of chambers of commerce, um, you know, by in 1929, there's more than 1500 chambers of commerce operating in communities all across the country. And they were affiliated with um, you know, key actors who moved into the New Deal, people like Harold Ickes and Charles Merriam, um, who recognized in these local business elites uh, a sort of civic spiritedness um, that they could tap into as sponsors and administrators of New Deal works programs. The idea that you might in Cleveland... Um, in the 1930s, the the head of the Cuyahoga County Works Progress Administration was an out-of-work railroad executive who hired 400, you know, out-of-work white-collar um, architects and engineers and draftsmen to come in and sort of determine what all that New Deal subsidized labor was going to do um, in ways that would be economically useful for the city. Um, and so there's a way in which the the business elites um, became sort of constitutive parts of the New Deal um, in ways that I, I don't think the the sort of the the you know the Gersel generation of of scholarship, which is excellent, sort of focused on a sort of centralizing moment. And and I think two things can be true at once. There's a there's a sort of federal authority that's emerging, but it's operating through um, uh, localism, through decentralization, through the administrative capacities and interests of these public-private partnerships that, that um, were sort of how urban governments function all the way back. Um, and oh. what's happening in the 1930s is they're being incorporated into the federal government in in really novel ways.
0: Well, this can stretch back to the 19th century, actually. Local boosts yeah. some efforts to do that there. I mean, you probably, you don't want to get into this in your book. You deal with plenty of scholarship, but the whole American political development uh, sociology political science. I think it's the Scotch poll, Stephen Schowernek uh, uh, makes the case that one of the reasons the US is a weak welfare state, though that's a question that chart is the state didn't have administrative capacity to actually do programs on the example, which of course is always sweet. Doesn't well, I'm not necessarily boost that literature, there's a lot to be said about that, but it seems you you've you, you fastened on to the problem of capacity have Mm -hmm. to take these programs there. And one of the obvious ways is you decentralize them.
1: That's right. And and one of the things that happens over the course of the new deal, you know, of course there by 1937, 1938, (laughs) you know, Congress is sort of, um, it's not becoming more conservative, but it's becoming, you know, um, less interested in some of the grand centralized experimentation of the first administration in particular. And what people I mentioned, Charles Merriam um, and other members of the National Resources Planning Board, who really did want to create a more sort of centralized and regional basis of economic planning that might supersede the sort of pragmatic partnerships that I talked about a minute ago, realize that they're not going to be able to get that system through Congress. Um, and it and it is in, in, in a very real way. And I and I hope the, the you know the the first few chapters of the book make this clear that it's it is the local business elites, these chambers of commerce, who carry forward the New Deal vision of regional and local economic planning in partnership with the federal government. Um, you know, the 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 it's 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 during World War II and after that these business people are going to their members of Congress, that they're seeking subsidies for planning, for infrastructure development, for housing. Um, and and so there's a Real way in which the the sort of initial burst of New Deal spending sort of catalyzes um, a, a movement of business people all across the country to plug into the federal government, especially across the South, where you know in Georgia, as I show, there's there's just market capital scarcity, and so these these business people who have been toiling to get levees and roads built um, all of a sudden have have Uncle Sam to turn to <laughs> for the spending, um, and so they they create all sorts of new planning agencies and economic development organizations. Uh, to really carry forward um, a vision of, of developmentalism, um, you know, shorn in some ways of the New Deal's social aspirations, but, but that's one that, that liberals are very much on board with.
0: Yeah, you know, the South is particularly interesting here because the, again, this is again if I for another name at some of the people watching, the R. Katz Nelson has argued especially uh, effectively that one of the big breaks in the New Deal was the South. That mm-hmm. the press had a majority, yes, but. A lot of that majority were in southern states in which African Americans were America disenfranchised, so you had to placate the in southern interest, and he sees them basically as retrograde. Uh, by and large, uh, he doesn't get into the great stuff, but still doesn't get into those elite issues. So, what does this do to the South? I mean, it sounds like you know, is there warfare or political warfare in the South between the elites as as this money starts flowing down the pipeline?
1: Um, warfare, I think would overstate it because, um, what what's happening is that there's a certain, there's a new sort of business politics that's emerging across the South that, that is, you know, compared to the sort of courthouse Jim Crow uh, style politics that went before is certainly more moderate in certain ways. I think I've, uh, I'm aligned in certain ways with Joe Casprino's first book about Mississippi um, and, and the ways in which the sort of um, uh, the quest for a more sort of um, modern politics that could sort of manage Jim Crow in certain ways without the sort of excesses of, of the violence um, very much is is what my business elites are looking for, and so they are they're trying to sort of surpass the the austerity um, and corruption of the old sort of court county courthouse gangs um, that operated across the South, and and they do so in fits and starts, and and with sort of new new South politicians people um you know jimmy carter emerges as a, as a sort of central figure in the book as, as somebody who is trying to sort of straddle the fence of old style um segregationist politics but is but is decisively forward-looking and 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 what southern democrats and business people they they call themselves progressives um not in the sense of like the progressive movement but is what we're actor is economic progress um and so there's there's a sort of moderate um uh, politics that's emerging across the South that's still very much um, uh, it, it's facilitated by the maintenance of jim Crow. it's It's easier to implement their economic development schemes because the South is a sort of apartheid state and uh, and there's less uh, democratic accountability for their planning. um but it but it is it's less willing to to participate in the excesses of of and uh, violence of of the older Jim Crow regimes.
0: Well, you again, you're used progressive um reminds me of, again, another recent work again. This is what happens when you write about the business in the state, you have all these haggly stuff that we, we talk about. But well, Jennifer Delton wrote a book about the National Association of Manufacturing a few years ago, in which she takes a I think the controversial stand, uh I found persuasive, that NAM was progressive, not in the sense of being a progressive movement for social change and so on and so forth, the way we might be in today, but progressive in a business sense. For modernizing things for, for and, and NAM, and she charts how NAM becomes a supporter of the New Deal state by the 1950s rather than against it because it was all this money rolling down. And hey, that's gonna be good for business.
1: Yeah, and I, I think you know one of the um one of the things that I think is the case is that, and this is something that, you know, um Daniel Bell and others were writing about is is you know we we tend to think of um, say planning economic planning a sort of anathema in the American system when we contrast it with you know Stalin's five year plans or something like that but part of what what's happening is the business business organizations are 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 not only doing the planning themselves which is of course what Galbraith and Bell are talking about um, but they're doing so in partnership with Local, regional, and federal authorities, um, and I think one of the things, and actually, this was really um, one of the more important finds for me, is that it's it's in the 1970s and 1980s that Nam sort of breaks with that more sort of pragmatic politics, um, and they do so at the cost of members um, and membership. Um, one of the um, one of the uh, you know, key sort of turns in the story is that in the 1970s, you know, you've got the Powell memo, you've got the sort of concerns about the new bureaucratic and regulatory class coming in, and there's a sort of a harder edge to business politics. Um, but at the local level, um, you know, business people who are struggling with the industrialization and and global economic shifts are really expecting the federal government to step in with subsidies with support for labor training, um, infrastructure, um all sorts of all sorts of things and 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 what what happens is Nam, conducts a series of polls of its members. And what they find is that that's what the members want and what the organization oh. has begun to do in the 1970s to start advocating for these more sort of abstract principles of free markets. Um, and and they lost many, many members um, as a result of that that more sort of harder edged, um, you know, Koch brothers style anti-status politics. Um, and this is this is sort of a, a thing I traced forward into the Reagan administration. You know, re- the Reagan administration holds a series of... Um, symposia and and workshops with business people all across the country to sell their vision of enterprise zones, right? These are these targeted tax and regulatory havens in cities that they say are going to drive private investment and and stimulate all sorts of new businesses. And all these business people say, you know, no business has ever started because of an absence of taxes or regulations, right? What what we need are subsidies, we need labor, we need a cooperative political climate, we need um, infrastructure. Um, and, and the Reagan administration, you know, the their their aides sort of prepare memos that sort of go nowhere as they send them up the 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 chain of command. And and instead they sort of double down on the sort of ideological vision of of doing away with those types of, of sort of more purist vision of of state market interaction. Um and that that is not at all what defined those public-private partnerships for most of the
0: 20th century. I mean this is going even further outside your book, but here's a question. Um, is this an argument against American exceptionalism? I mean, the, the exceptionalist argument is that America, unlike the Western countries, doesn't have a strong welfare state, you know, uh, business is more dominant and all that. And, you know, and, and of course, and I, I said before, it's joking with that Sweden is the example. But France and Britain and Germany, that's kind of the standard. And then there's the U.S., which kind of that's a weak welfare state, a weak sort of you're kind of saying, well, actually, the state is terrifically important in American political development. Uh, it's not a, it's not a weak state argument.
1: I think that's right. And 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 I think the I think the the, the way that I would sort of finesse the point is that um, we liberals, conservatives, business people had a very difficult time um, uh, coming up with, you know, and this is where the exceptionalist thing is sort of a cultural trope that that goes all the way back there. They have a hard time. Um, Naming and claiming the types of developmental partnerships they're building, um, and instead come up with all sorts of other ways of describing. Well, it's this is you know we're 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 going to deliver these subsidies on behalf of fighting World War II. We're going to do it um, on behalf of um, you know military contracting in the Cold War. Um, this is where the sort of poverty lens comes in. We're doing it as these targeted bursts to solve problems of of affordable housing or of uh or or you know lack of jobs in certain communities or, or rural poverty in appalachia um and what what happens is that these each time these are sort of these programs are framed themselves as rather exceptional um and fleeting um but when you sort of pull the lens back what you see is that this what i call supply-side liberalism is a remarkably durable form of state market interaction state sculpting of markets working with business people to to, to try to create downstream social goods um and what i would say is that um that what they the reason they emerged in this sort of ad hoc way was because of a sort of acceptance of the constitutional structure of fiscal federalism right and this is sort of one of the themes running through the book is that liberals um didn't really want to create robust federal programs that would have to have appropriations year after year um and instead what they decided to do was to send these targeted bursts of subsidies insurance for housing to the local level in ways that might stimulate growth that could create local fiscal capacity so local governments could do these things over time um and and um and so there's a way in which the sort of the the Rapprochement with the constitutional structure itself sort of reinforces the tropes of American exceptionalism and, and sort of consensus. But lurking behind that is just robust state action everywhere you go. Um, it's just it's just um, uh, more ad hoc um, than um, than
0: formalized. I mean, and really, I mean, tracing that back uh, deep into the Progressive Era, it seemed to me. I mean, Charles Merriam, you know, who you mentioned who's a big player in your story, and he's active in the Chicago plant. Which which recreates downtown Chicago in the 1920s and 30s to generate a much more business friendly loop area. So, I mean, you don't need to do this in your story, but I'm saying that this actually extends back probably to to the progressive era, the progressives trying to create partnerships to engage in economic development.
1: Absolutely. No, there's no question. And I actually, one of my one of my mentors on this project sort of urged me to take the story back into the, you know, 1880s and 1890s, but oh. it's uh, it was already too long. So I, I sort of gesture at that through figures like Miriam, um, you know, who was not only the first political scientist at the University of Chicago, but was a member of the Chicago City Council, was a Republican, worked very closely, as you mentioned, um, uh, with Frederick Delano, um, Franklin Roosevelt's uncle, um, on some of these, the you know, harbor plans. He works on uh, getting the city out of its municipal debt crises in the teens and 20s. Um, and these are all orientations toward public and private interaction that he's going to bring with him into the National Resources Planning Board
0: as its sort of chief theorist. Um, yeah. right. Well, I mean, if, if Richard White were sitting here, he'd say, hey, the railroads. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So in so other so I mean, this is one, I, I see this as a continuity argument. I mean, I mean, obviously things change, you know, in, in the 20th century, but you are make an argument about the enduring nature of the American federal state. That mm-hmm. look at the federal government is insufficient for understanding the importance of the state, you know, in the economy. And you know, William Novak made this point about the early part of the 19th century. So it's a it's a big argument, it seems to me that that you're making. Of course, you have to, you know, to, to fight over the 30s to the 90s I mean, in, in several cities and. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff to cover there, but it seems a very a very intriguing argument to avoid this kind of exceptionalism, not necessarily American exceptionalism, but exceptionalism of the New Deal, mm-hmm. the, the great exception as uh, Jefferson Cowley has put it. You're saying eh, not so much when it comes to that.
1: Well, yeah, and that's, and, and one of the things that I, I sort of grapple with is, is this, and, and, you know, and uh, sad to say, I'm at bottom a policy historian. And so what I'm really interested in is the sort of administration of the programs themselves. And so while you know the you know Ger- Gary Gersell in his recent book on the rise and fall of the neoliberal order sort of posits that there was this consensus um that's his word around big centralized government and pretty much everywhere i looked um in these programs is lurking this sort of idea of decentralism this idea of local partners in the private sector of of not creating enduring budget outlays um and and so part of what i was trying to do was to sort of square the rooseveltian rhetoric of uh, of the social welfare state of of the four freedoms of the um uh, you know uh, the economic bill of rights all of these things with the actual ways that the liberal state is seeking to carry these things out and it's in, it's in it's in that distance between the two that i think the the story really um latches on to the historiography and sort of propels you know the case that some of the sort of neoliberal <laughs> policy tools uh, and orientations toward government themselves have a much longer um um um, history of being embedded in state practices and, as you've said, going back to the 19th century as well.
0: Um, now, now, let's talk a little bit more about these businessmen who you're talking. Yes. About. we have. A, I mean, who are these people? What are they? What do they do? Because these are your local actors or not so local actors, but these are the people who are talking your story.
1: Yeah. So as I got into this, and this was this was something that was I sort of figured out later on in the dissertation and and as I began to work on the book was that there that there is a that there is a particular sort of genus or class of local business person and these are not your industrial titans your 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 big you know uh, manufacturers or textile um um elites what they are are largely you know the progenitors of the fire economy finance insurance real estate um law um, and these are business people whose bottom lines really do depend upon the broader health of their local economy. Um, and so they are the ones who very often are doing the recruiting of the big manufacturing firms. They're the ones who are trying to bring capital into their community because the health of their bank or their the real estate values or their law firm depends upon those uh, those connections. Um And so um, so part of what I do in the book is look at how even though, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, um, in the 1930s is, I think, the fifth biggest city in the country, um, there's a way in which. Um, given their orientation to local um, economic development, their dependence upon local economic development, they end up acting in ways structurally very similar to some of the rural business boosters in the South. Um, They have a sort of different cultural orientation and and national political valence at first, um, but they go through a sort of remarkably similar process of kind of accommodating themselves to the New Deal and it's spending really quickly. And in Cleveland's a really interesting case because these are all Republicans. These are all people who would have voted for Hoover, um, who are um, having to go to you know U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, meetings where they're debating and decrying the New Deal. Some of them are the president. You know, we had a president of the National Association of Manufacturers um, from Cleveland, um, and so they are they are discursively and I think um, instinctively anti, you know federal spending, anti-federal regulation, but uh, they recognize pretty quickly that 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 these, these spending programs have real benefits. And so part of what I try to do in a sort of subtle way through the book is make the case that they develop a certain sort of political, cultural orientation to the state, which I, I borrow from sort of 19th century scholars of labor and agrarian politics of producerism. Um, they, they justify their relationship to big federal spending in terms of the ways in which, um, they become the producers of efficient federal programs. And through these programs, they produce jobs for their community. Um, and so there's a way in which they they have to sort of justify their relationship with the state, um, so that they can sort of square their ideological predilections with the actual, uh, existing role that they're playing in growing government. Um, And so that that becomes a sort of story that I weave through
0: um, throughout the book. You call this um, business producerism, yeah, which is, I think, a very nice turn of phrase there because it captures both what their their function, which is they are actually engaged in the local economy, but also there's a producerist ethos that they are Mm -hmm. producing for the entire community. And,
1: and this and 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 one of the things that I think is a puzzle that we haven't fully grappled with in the sort of neoliberalism story um is when when did business people decide that their businesses themselves were socially good? you know that that you know, outside of the philanthropy that you might see, but that actually the businesses themselves as a model for the state. And as a sort of active model for sort of local government. Um, And and that's a puzzle that I think the neoliberalism literature hadn't quite sorted out. And part of what I'm trying to show is that it's through the interaction with liberal development programs, liberal infrastructure programs, liberal housing programs, liberal anti-poverty programs, that business people not only Um, learn to frame their state partnerships in these sort of progressive social ways, but they're required to, you know, they have in their applications for these programs, they actually have to do an inventory of local poverty. They have to, they have to offer an index of how their management of these programs is actually going to benefit the least off and and so, um, and so there's a process of learning that's happening here between local business people and the liberal state that I think produces the thing that you know, Milton Friedman by nineteen seventy is you know, pulling his hair. Out. like, what is this corporate social responsibility stuff? like, where is this coming from? And I think we have a sort of short term story about it's a response to the new left, it's a response to the civil rights movement. But I think there's a much longer sort of genealogy of, of state business partnerships that's teaching business people to sort of frame their access to state subsidies um, and their, their profit seeking in progressive, quote unquote, progressive ways. Um, and so that's, that's a sort of key part of the business producerist ethos. Um, and that I think helps explain, you know, businesses place in the sort of neoliberal moment um, as sort of, you know, claimants to the social good.
0: Well, I mean, it's a, it's a Frank Capra. It's a Wonderful Life. You know, (laughs) not, not in your bank. Well, it's in, it's Sam's store down the street. You know, it's in this, that. You know, the defense of this, of this local elite is that they are investing in the community.
1: And Absolutely. That, and and one of the things that I think is really interesting, too, like going back to the um, and this is, you know, maybe really inside baseball for some yeah. listeners, but, you know, thinking about like Robert Wiebe's work in the search for order, I mean, and C. Wright Mills and, and some of the early, early organizational synthesis scholars yeah, yeah. sort of viewed the 1920s and 1930s as the end of this sort of babatry, these local, these local right, business right. people. And part of what I try to show is that, in fact, the New Deal, in a very real way, resuscitates their role, both in the local civic space and as brokers of these momentous forms of federal power. Um, and so, you know, there's a way in which um, they could have gone the way of the dinosaur. And I think in some ways, by the end of my book, they have, they have um, but that has to do with much bigger sort of macro global economic forces, deregulation, these types of things, um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're, 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 we're walking through a lot of literature here and apologies if you talk about <laughs> yeah, Right. We so beat the search for order. It's built upon the notion of the mine shop, like a cell shop. You have locals and you have cosmopolitans, which is often an organizing principle in American history. And he argues that cosmopolitans eventually went out. Short story, longer book there. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's part of your story is that inside the local areas, your, your local guys that maybe don't want to stay around, you know they get a grant program and look at the program they go millions of dollars for bridges. Hmm. Well how would my benefit business benefit from having a bridge that crosses from here to there and reduces the time so on and so forth. It's obvious stuff for these local business people there. So the business people they are uh, not industrialists. Yes for the do. most part
1: for the most part. There you, there there are some lurking around the fringe who have sort of you know, just sort of, be, for personal reasons, have sort of civic commitments to a community. But by and large, we're talking about lawyers, real estate interests in the South. I have a, a number of sort of distributors, um, um, these types of things. I mean, who are really dependent upon uh, utility officers. Um, you know, in in uh, electric utility firms, like I'm very interested in economic development and growth, right? Developing new customer bases, um, and so that's that's the sort of strata of, of business actor that I'm looking at.
0: I mean, in a way, these are these are business people more closely tied to consumption and to generating, I mean, because that's what's going on in the local area. You want people to have money so they can buy things and do things and, you know, um, have real estate policies, you know, buy houses, you know, put money in the local bank and all that. So I know that's not, 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 not the major, um, you know, sort of, you will, motif of your book there, but there is a whole conversation about the importance of consumption and consumption as a way of driving economic growth in the New Deal and afterwards there. And these are not consumption people in that sense, but they just seem to me to be oriented towards a local, a local area where manufacturers who are, say, making bolts, and there are plants that are making bolts that are very right wing, they're not selling the bolts in a local political economy, they're selling bolts to the auto companies. And so they're not part of that local set of concerns, even if they're living you know, cheek to jowl to the people who are your chamber of commerce folks.
1: That's right and I, and I think one of the things that I that I would emphasize as well is that I, mean, I think you know um, we in, in the political historical literature we have this idea that you know there was this period of, of robust experimentation and centralization in the early New deal um, that was creating cartels and setting prices and, and doing all of this work um, and that by you know the end of the 1930s, That the New Deal had recognized, New Dealers had recognized the power of economies of scale for for driving down consumer prices. Um, And that's the sort of macro story of the Keynesian growth liberalism story that Alan Brinkley and others have told. And part of what I'm trying to show here is that that sort of, that national story rested upon a a, a firmament, you know, of of, of, um, really robust targeted structural interventions in local markets. Um, And so this, you know, this idea that we had turned away from industrial policy, or we turned away from using government subsidies to drive innovation, um, that it was just about consumer demand um, actually misses um, a really uh, robust and durable form of state intervention in driving innovation and driving market developments um, as a sort of symbiotic part of that.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I'll, let me move. I, I have more questions about that, but I don't want to take this take too long here. But let me ask you uh, another direction that obviously you're very concerned about in the book, which is the implications of all this for working people and minorities. You know, what does this mean? Of course, we think of the New Deal and then, of course, the, the Great Society and all that as, a t- as progress in that our contemporary sense, progress for working people, progress for racial minorities, how does your story engage with that? What what is the implications of your story for those
1: groups? Yeah, so so this again is a is a sort of continuity story stretching back into the progressive era, right? I mean, you think about um, um, the ways in which the progressive era was about sort of reforming local governments um, and sort of turning down the influence of, say, Tammany Hall um, and sort of ethnic corruption and and moving to you know city managers and and you know delivering, delivering, um, you know, democratic outcomes, but perhaps not, you know, doing so through mass democratic participation in certain ways, which is sort of a hallmark of, of you know, the teens and 20s reformers. And part of what I try to show is that those that the, the structure of urban Democracy, the structure of urban governance, these public—the ways that the private is sort of calling the tune of of local government—becomes a constitutive part of the federal government through the New Deal. Um, and this was something that the NAACP recognized really early on, um, like 1937. They're writing memos and urging the federal government to allow African-Americans, to allow representatives of the NAACP to to sort of sit on the local boards administering federal programs. Um, they're sort of saying, like, we need we need admin, what I call administrative enfranchisement um, in these new federal programs, which are um, harnessing the power of these local elites who are in bed with, you know, are part of the Jim Crow state in the South or part of the sort of the Jim Crow state of the North um, in certain ways. And they're saying, you know, it's not enough to just have a federal works program, you need to actually incorporate a broader set of local people in the administration of these programs. Um, And so I, I trace that story through Using the archives of of community activists, um, minority activists, um, and the the key inflection point here then is is the war on poverty um, of of Lyndon Johnson and his community action programs, which which actually did propose to create um, partnerships with minorities, with poor people themselves, public private partnerships, and and. And um, you know, it's it's sort of a staggeringly radical concept if we think about it today, the idea that, you know, a local community group could apply to the federal government um to create its own little jobs training program or a community center um without having to go through local governments. And 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 my business people and their allies in City Hall respond immediately by saying, whoa, 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 whoa. These are not the kinds of public-private partnerships that that the liberal state has been instantiating. And in fact, minority groups use these community action programs and the maximum feasible participation of the poor principle that they were authorized through to challenge these local hierarchies of power that um, business people and and their allies and city governments had had been able to entrench through partnership with liberal programs. Um, And very quickly, I show that it's Lyndon Johnson who Moves to to end maximum feasible participation precisely by bringing business people back into the administration of these of these very programs, um, uh, and then Nixon sort of finishes the job um, with his new federalism proposals. Um, yeah, and and so part of what I try to show is that that there was a, a sort of um, you know we have a sort of you know New England town green vision of local democracy um, that you know actors from Roosevelt to Reagan have invoked about the value of decentralism and localism and and building consensus. You know local people know best what their problems are, but we need to attend very carefully to how those programs are being administered, whose voice whose voices are being heard, and to what ends are these programs being put at the local level?
0: Uh, I mean, I think you also talked about how the nature of these these partnerships moves them away from politics and not necessarily in the more general sense. But, in the in the actual practice of political power, the debate over politics in local areas, because they're insulated from the electoral system, That's
1: right, and that's and that again, that goes back to the Progressive era, the ways in which these public-private partnerships are insulated And, and part of what I try to show in the 70s, 80s, and 90s is that for a whole range of actors, particularly the new Democrats who I focus on from you know, from you know Bill Clinton and and some of the DLC Democrats on up, view public-private partnerships in the wake of, you know, the politics of the welfare rights movement in the 1970s and and the, and the sort of expansion of the minority rights revolution in the 1970s and, and these insurgent groups who are making claims on the state, they view public-private partnerships as a way of sort of depoliticizing um, access to... These, you know, still fairly momentous forms of federal spending. And and by the end, I I show in the epilogue that, in fact, the public private partnership and developmental supply side logics that had informed this liberal mode of state building throughout the 20th century become sort of key to how Clinton views ending welfare entirely that what what we're going to put up in its place. Um, you know this this contentious issue that has been a thorn in the side of centrist Democrats for twenty years. At the time that he he, you know signs signs away um, the New Deal's welfare programs, um, is to take those subsidies and offer them to businesses who hire people who have been out of work and to and to jawbone them uh, into doing so. And so it's a sort of similar logic, um, but the idea, as he says, is to is to t- drain the politics from welfare um, by by moving it into the market rather than the public sphere.
0: And yeah, this is a point that uh, Mark Rose and Roger Biles developed in their book about uh, downtown that he, we, you know, I interviewed him a while ago there, where you know, with all this money around now, especially with you know, the forms that you talk about there, there's all sorts of ways you can fix up the downtown under that kind of logic there. But part of that, the absence of participation is that the neighborhoods are, lose out in that funding there. And, and, you know, Dustin Jenkins talks about this and mm-hmm. bonds and all that. I mean, it, it has implications to go past what you're saying, that things are structured in a manner, especially the financial right, structured in a manner, which ties the state's hand financially mm-hmm. to have to do certain kinds of things.
1: Yeah. And one of one of the other things that I think is really interesting here that sort of, ex, I think, helps to begin explaining, and there's lots more work, historical work that needs to be done on this. But one of the really interesting things about the community action and the war on poverty moment, this maximum feasible participation, is that, you know, even as Lyndon Johnson and then Richard Nixon after him moved to foreclose meaningful, you know, grassroots participation in these types of programs, this sort of, ideal of participation holds on. And so what we start to see over the course of the 1970s and 1980s is both business people and politicians um, offering highly managed forms of participation where in a city like Cleveland, neighborhood groups are brought in and are confronted with the austerity of the Reagan era and are invited to decide which things to cut themselves. <laughs> right? Um, and so there's a way in which then um, this sort of participation holds on as a way of sort of releasing some of those pressures from community groups so that business people and their political allies can get back to the work of those downtown developments that, that you were just talking about, right? Um, so there's sort of a, a really strange little political half-life of participation that holds on in a neoliberal era. Well, great. Well,
0: talk to me about Hagley and what you got from our sources here in writing this book.
1: Yeah. So I mentioned that the, 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 the National Association of Manufacturers' Records, that, that sort of inflection point of the 1970s was really important uh, to me in, in recognizing this divergence between local and national business politics. Um, and so that's that's part of it. But I think, I think the other piece that happens here, um, thinking in particular about the Chamber of Commerce, um, they get very close, and the Chamber of Commerce records at Hagley made this very clear to me, they become very close with the Nixon administration. And so as the Nixon administration, is proposing what he, he calls his new federalism reforms, where he's gonna take liberal programs like urban renewal and the war on poverty, and he's gonna strip them of all their regulations, but keep the money and distribute the money in block grants to local governments. What Nixon does is he partners with Arch Booth um, and, and, and leaders of the Chamber of Commerce on a series of videos. They do a series of national um, uh, television broadcast simulcast um, TV, um, sort of conferencing, proto Zoom calls, um, with local chambers of commerce all across the country, and they're saying, "We need you to come in and take over the administration of all of these, you know, big status liberal programs, right?" As if, as if those business people hadn't been there all along, right? And and so that really um, uh, puts into perspective for me um, that public-private partnership. And one of the things that it did was it caused me to look a fresh at, you know, perhaps the most famous memo of business politics uh, and the rise of neoliberalism, which is this Powell memo, right, um, that, that Lewis Powell writes before he is appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon. He's a, he's a corporate attorney, represents R.J. Reynolds in Richmond, Virginia. Um, and the Powell memo, you know, Jane Mayer um, for The New Yorker, all sorts of scholars have used this text you know this is a, a secret memo that he writes for the US Chamber of Commerce calling for business people to go on the march um and to and to get more involved in politics and and it's often been invoked as this sort of um uh as the as the the signal call for sort of neoliberalization that, that what we need is to is to move in and hollow out the state and and what i what the chamber of commerce involvement with the nixon administration caused me to do was to actually figure out who it was that invited Powell to write the memo, oh. and so there's this guy um, named Eugene Sidner. You know, so he sends the letter to sends the memo to Eugene Sidner, who's the director of education programming for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And I was like, well, who is this guy, Eugene Sidner? And it turns out he's he's a regional retailer, um, department store owner from Richmond to Newport News, Virginia. And he's had 20 years building industrial development planning bodies in Virginia. He is a, a a member of the Richmond Chamber of Commerce. He's precisely the kind of business person that I've been writing about. And part of what I see here is they talk about the American system of business and government governance. Oh. And part of what I try to say is that, yeah, you know, some more, you know, libertarian or anti-statist business people may have taken Powell's memo as a call to sort of you know, shrink the state down until it could be, you know, drowned in a bathtub or whatever the line is. But but part of what I, what I actually think is happening here is that Sidner asked his friend, Lewis Powell, to write this memo in a way to sort of create a language that would continue to authorize state business partnerships um, in an era of, you know, new left criticism of corporations in an era of growing regulation to sort of mobilize business producerism um on behalf of a privileged relationship with the state. And so I I think I think it 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 has gone on to have numerous different lives and interpretations, but but the actual relationship between oh. the writer of the memo and the person who solicited I see very much fits with the 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 types of politics um that the book uh, explains more broadly.
0: Yeah so this is our the chamber of commerce records here give you that give you that that's yeah.
1: that, that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And, and uh, folks may not realize how much larger the Chamber of Commerce is than NAM. I and mean, there's a much different, yes. huge difference in scale between those organizations throughout just budget and all that there. So, you know, because the Chamber has all these local affiliates. So when the Chamber, you know, moves, it has the capacity to reach business people in a much broader way than, than, than NAM does. And yeah, yeah. There's, there's your network right there.
1: That's right, and I think, and I think the um, you know, and there's tension in the same way that NAM has in any federated organization around, you know, do does the chamber does NAM view their members and their affiliates as shock troops to carry out the national vision, or do they view themselves as serving as lobbyists for the local affiliates? And that tension is never, it's never fully
0: one direction or the other. Um, yeah. Well, very good. i went glad we can help you out. And also, you've been to some conferences, you've given some papers, you've done a few other things here. So Absolutely, yeah. We're able to support you now. You're a neighbor now. Univers- I am U- University of Pennsylvania, so we'll have to get you back up here for some uh, for some more things, Brent.
1: Right? You can uh, count on it.
0: But but thank you. I think this has been a been a great conversation. I could talk for much longer, but uh, maybe we need to do it over here rather than at the of this there. Uh, I hope you all will will read his book. Take a look at um, illusions of progress about this this rethinking, if you will, of uh, state business in the twentieth century. If I can put it that way, and um, we'll continue to come back here and hear more. Having history hangouts about some of the great work done in our collection, some of what you've learned about today. So, thank you, Brent. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you, see you again at the having history. Thank you so much, Roger.